conflict in the Arctic, quite frankly, is not good for anyone. It is not good for Russia, it is not good for Denmark, it is not good for Norway, for the US. Countries in that region should expect to see a normalised presence of China. Without the ability to engage on areas of common challenge, there's no way that you can build the confidence measures that you need to reduce risk. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and I'm joined today by Dr. Elizabeth Buchanan. Among other things, she is co-director of MWI's Project 6633, an initiative focused on polar security, and a first Sea Lord Five Eyes Fellow for the Royal Navy. She is also the author of a recently published book called Red Arctic, Russian Strategy Under Putin. In geopolitical terms, the Arctic has a number of unique features that really set it apart from other regions. Its governance structures, the way Arctic states engage with one another, the way they tackle shared challenges and address disputes. This is all a little bit different in the Arctic than elsewhere. But with renewed strategic competition between the United States and its allies on one hand and states like Russia on the other, and especially against the backdrop of Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year and the subsequent efforts to sanction and politically isolate Moscow in response, is the sort of engagement and cooperation that has characterized the Arctic for the past few decades still possible? And is it strategically wise to pursue Arctic engagement with Russia given all that's happening today? Dr. Buchanan addresses those questions and more in this episode. Before we get to it, as always, just a couple quick notes. First, if you're not yet subscribed to the MWI podcast, you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or any other app. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Dr. Elizabeth Buchanan. Dr. Elizabeth Buchanan, thank you so much for joining me in this episode of the MWI podcast. Thanks, John. Excited to be here. So you have a new book out uh, published, I believe, by the Brookings Institution Press called Red Arctic, Russian Strategy Under Putin. And it is, I think, you know, at its core, kind of an argument for uh, in favor of engagement and cooperation in the Arctic and sort of building a firewall to keep geopolitics and interstate tensions and even war, you know, things that are taking place elsewhere from spilling over into the Arctic region. We're going to get into that uh, specifically in a little bit because I think it's really interesting. Uh, it's an interesting argument, perhaps a somewhat provocative or controversial one. You'll have a better sense of, of that based on the feedback that you've gotten to the book that was uh, just published a few weeks ago. But I first want to kind of take a step back and talk about two things. A, uh, Arctic governance and geopolitical dynamics in the region, and B, Russia and its sort of perceived interests in the Arctic. So if we start with the first of those two, what, what makes the Arctic unique in terms of how states engage with one another compared to other regions? Yeah, so that was the core, I think, of my, of my book. And that was about not necessarily... Um, you know, going out of our way to cooperate with the Putin regime or with Russia in the Arctic. It was about protecting, you know, the immense amount of work that had been done to cultivate um, Arctic regional cooperation and dialogue and collaboration. And we're talking about something, the Arctic Council, which is at the core of that kind of collaboration in the region. It's the sole governance forum that we have um, and that was founded in 1996. So we're going on kind of a quarter of a century, if not longer, just of regional cooperation. And through that, you've got 
the facilitation of Russia, you know, Soviet Union. Um, before that, they had various um, issues in the Cold War, obviously, because that is the shortest path um, from Moscow to Washington, right over the North Pole. So we had this region that was kind of a theatre, so a theatre for Russia and the West um, to potentially come to blows in, right? But it never really eventuated. And then you've moved into the 90s and you've had the Arctic Council and so much work has gone into keeping this forum um, alive and kicking throughout various other bumps along the road, um, conquests, you know, in the Middle East, we've had Syria. Um, Ukraine has been the biggest one, but I think we need to remember that um, for Russia, Ukraine started back in 2014. Um, and the first little spillover notion which helped me, I guess, come up with the case for writing the book was various Western sanctions that were imposed on majority of Russian energy in the Arctic region, so in the Russian Arctic zone, we call it. Um, so Western firms were basically sanctioned for engaging in these projects. That was the first kind of quiver of tensions potentially spilling over, but um, some Western country, some Western companies, sorry, especially the US firms like ExxonMobil, were able to get waivers to extend, you know, the duration of their engagement in the Russian Arctic zone. That all changed quite drastically um, following the February 22 um, invasion of Ukraine by Russia. So in March, a few weeks later, we had the Arctic Council uh, permanent members, so the Arctic Eight, we call them, um, by Russia, uh, announced that they were going to suspend engagement in council activities for the duration of the Russian chairmanship. And I think it's really important to, first of all, frame and highlight that point. So they didn't exit the Arctic Council. It didn't fall apart. Um, there was a lot of hot air in that one. It was basically just the, the Arctic Council is currently um, under the two-year rotational presidency of Russia. For the duration of this period, we're not engaging um, with Putin's Russia on anything to do with um, Arctic affairs. Second thing to keep in mind is in the governance um, terms of the Arctic Council, they actually have no mandate to discuss military strategic issues. So they're really only about sustainable development, Indigenous rights, um, the kind of softer things I think that can bring countries to the table, like science, for example, for, for, as an example. So that occurred, we had this freeze in engagement with Russia in the presidency of the Arctic Council. Then in June of last year, so a few months later, I think there was enough um, public outcry in the, especially in the sort of geostrategic community um, throughout the world actually, that there was gonna be severe implications of that decision to freeze engagement with Russia in the Arctic Council. Um, what, the, what then sort of transpired was the Western countries primarily decided that they would re-engage with each other through the Arctic Council on select projects that didn't involve Russia. Where this all then gets complicated, and my book tries to lay out um, the lay of the land in the Arctic, is over 50% of the region is legitimately territorially Russian. So if you're working on collaborative issues in the Arctic, you're working on climate 
change concerns. You're working on search and rescue requirements. You're working on these transnational issues that don't know any political boundaries or, oh, you know, we're going to stop. We're going to stop an oil spill issue in this sector because, it, you know, we're not dealing with the country that has control and sovereignty over the next sector. So that was an interesting um, sort of re-engagement light, I think you would say it. So that's in terms of the governance issues um, that we've had. I guess spillover is, is now actually the correct term. We're going to talk about sanctions and and the impact of the Ukraine invasion on Arctic cooperation. We're gonna um, we're gonna talk about energy, obviously, and and other interests. We're gonna talk about physical territory, but I want to zoom back out to the sort of the infrastructure that enables cooperation because it, I, I can't reiterate strongly enough how fundamentally unique this is amongst or compared to any other region in the world. The way that cooperation and engagement happens through this particular mechanism, the Arctic Council. Can you describe, you know, the you gave the you gave the context in the Cold War of the North Pole, the Arctic being the shortest distance between, you know, the two superpowers that were sort of, you know, at the at the center of the of the Cold War. And then 1996 is this really important date because it's just enough time after the end of the Cold War, after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, for Russia to sort of get its feet back under it and come in as, you know, a coherent actor uh, around around the Arctic, what were the sort of motives for all of the stakeholders coming together and saying, hey, we need to do something different here than we do in other, say, maritime regions of the world? Yeah, so that's a really, really good question because there's so much assumption in in the community, in the expert community even, of polar warfare that just baffles me. But one of the, I think one of the lessons that was learned when it came to um, the Cold War and how, where are the areas in which we can find Russia West, you know, Soviet American unity of um, effort, right? Where are there places we can work together? Um, much in the same way that, you know, in the early days of the Putin administration, early 2000s, once 9-11 had happened, Russia said, you know, terrorism's a problem for us as well. Let's engage on that. But when it comes to... Um, the idea of why it's just so um, exceptional, we can't overstate it enough because in the Cold War, you had the Antarctic experiment. And often these two are conflated, but they're very much apples and oranges, right? So basically you had the 1959 to 1961 negotiations, but it's completely different to what eventuated because essentially the Antarctic Treaty froze the discussion of who owns what and who can, you know, use that continent for strategic purposes and strategic gain. So some people kind of claim that that was the first polar win for, for the Cold War, but it absolutely wasn't because the engagement between the two states or two blocks, I guess you could say, in those times um, was very limited. There wasn't much overlap at all and it was a competitive existence to kind of put a lid on it. Then you've got in 1996 the development of the Arctic Council and that wasn't about putting a lid on any strategic or geostrategic interests. That was about facilitating engagement, right? And I think that what the difference is and just why the Arctic Council itself and why the Arctic issue um, as a theatre, I think as a strategic theatre, is just so exceptional is because it is at its heart a maritime problem right um and 
every maritime problem we look to has to have a baseline of cooperation, right? You need to know the rules of the game. You need to have avenues for dialogue. Um, to deter, you need to have dialogue. Um, because without the dialogue and the collaboration, or at least the ability to engage on areas of common challenge, um, there's no way that you can build the confidence measures that you need to reduce risk. And my, I guess, part of the central thesis of my book is we have the potential, and obviously it was released before um, the decisions were made to suspend engagement through the Arctic Council with Russia, but we have the potential here for a powder keg of risk. And in suspending collaboration and engagement with Russia and I know that this line of argument as you said was a little bit controversial and that's fine but if we don't have the the confidence building measures there they're really hard part of the thesis of my book is it is so hard to re-implement them it again a quarter over a quarter of a century of efforts from numerous stakeholders numerous iterations of governments you know to facilitate this maritime space, yes, covered by ice for most of the year, um, it is still fundamentally a maritime space. And maritime requires cooperation to keep it, to keep it going. Like that's just the fundamentals of it. Um, but I think in the suspension of viable engagement with Russia, we have the West generally has not only complicated its ability to deal with common problems in the Arctic, environmental problems, um, climate problems, research issues, um, but it has also complicated its ability, again, the West, to protect and promote national interests. So if I take the US as a stakeholder in the Arctic, again, legitimate, Arctic Rim Territory, um, historical, you know, basic basics of geography again, um, you now have a challenge in which the suspension of collaboration or at least the, the air of wanting to communicate and work with Russia has been used by the Russian government, you know, to basically throw their hands up in the air and in an information warfare kind of way say, you, you forced us into a corner, we can't cooperate with you, so we're going to look to other partners. They knew full well that China, India, a number of Middle Eastern countries, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, have key interests in what's going on in the Arctic, right? They were there in, in, in the winds ready to be ushered in. So that's where I'm saying the diversity of national security issues in the Arctic, I feel, and this is my thesis, has been unnecessarily complicated by this decision to freeze engagement because yeah. now countries in that region should expect to see a normalised presence of China, of India, of Saudi Arabia, perhaps even Pakistan. And that for me is a, is a bigger net problem. So you mentioned, uh, you mentioned geography, which I think is really important. You also, you open your book, the very opening sort of vignette in the, in the preface is the, 
um, 2007 Russian expedition that planted a flag on the Arctic seabed. At the time, I think that was largely framed as a sort of bid to control access uh, to resources in the region, which you've talked okay. about. Okay. Um, so if we turn to the kind of the, the question of Russians' interests or Russians' perceived interest, Russia's perceived interests in the Arctic, you've got yeah. resources that you've talked about, but you also, again, you mentioned geography. And I think this is really interesting. You know, if you look at the North Pole, if you look at the Earth from above, you put a pin sort of in the North Pole, and then you draw a line, say, from that pin to the Alaska-Canada border, and another one from the North Pole, from that pin to the Bering Strait. That represents sort of the 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 wedge within which U.S. territory in the Arctic exists. It's maybe okay. 30 degrees, probably even less than that of the 360 okay. degree okay. circle. You go on, you okay. can do, you know, Canada, um, Denmark, obviously through through Greenland, uh, the little bit of Iceland that sticks up above the, the Arctic circle, the Nordic countries, yeah. and then you get to Russia. If you do that same thing for Russia, it's almost 180 degrees. It's almost half of that circle. There's a huge amount of, as, as you said, 50% of, of land, the landmass in the Arctic circle is, is Russian. So we often in the U.S. talk about Arctic, uh, Arctic security as a homeland defense issue, a national defense, territorial defense issue because of that. Given the fact that they have you know, a, a, a littoral region that's something like six times larger than that of the U.S., does Russia also frame this principally as a national defense issue, or is it mostly about resources, or am I, am I missing something? You know, is it more than just about those two things? No, no, there is. So many, so many driving factors here. Um, I think the, the overarching point is that there has been a continuity from Soviet days, perhaps even before then, but I'm not the expert on pre-Soviet Arctic strategy, unfortunately. That might be the next book. Um, but there's been a continuity of strategic interest in the idea that this is an open flank. This siege mentality, this arguably increasingly schizophrenic mentality of if our enemy is at our door, this is the one it's going to come through. It is the largest flank we have. We cannot resource it. We cannot secure it. So, but we're going to do our darndest to try. Um, so that's the first thing. Um, again, go back to the geography point. I think that is such a significant part of this um, issue and it's one that's overlooked and to its own detriment because if you can just show someone a map and talk about the rules-based order that we try to promote and protect and the centrality of things like UNCLOS, UN Convention Law of the Sea, um, if you were then to look at a map, as you said, from a pinpoint from the North Pole, you would see that there is a legitimate international legal stake here for Russia, that our international rules-based order we seek to uphold, if we were being good little Vegemites and wanting to do that everywhere, including in the South China Sea, we would also be doing it in the Arctic, right? But I think there's a, a almost a social issue in the West, which is there is no way, and I know either any way I say this will come out pro-Russian, but it's kind of, I try to separate um, the ideology from just the pragmatic reality that the legitimate interests for the Russian government in the Arctic are such that we shouldn't be surprised that they are arming it to the teeth. Um, if you, you know, step into the mentality of who's currently in the Kremlin, none of this should be a surprise. So beyond, I think, securing that wide open, difficult flank, you've got basic state interests of you know, state, state survival. So you want to have 
freedom of action, right? You want to be able to have absolute sovereignty and deliver on it when needed. Um, but you also want to have optionality. And I think it's really important, again, to point out the primacy of ge geography here for Russia. So the year-round port access for the Russian northern fleet, majority of its nuclear arsenal, is up in the Western Arctic area of the Russian Arctic zone. So these are all, you know, aspects of a puzzle that fit together to show that it shouldn't be a surprise that this region was always of strategic interest to Russia. Um, when I was doing postdoc research um, at the NATO Defence College, I was working on the GIUK gap, right? So the Greenland, Iceland, United Kingdom maritime gap. Basically, the problem was the Alliance wanted to know, you know, what do we need to do in that space, right? We used to, in the Cold War, we had a number of issues with Soviet subs that we couldn't track. So we had seabed cables, radars, we had everything set up there. But we lost our footprint there when the Soviet Union collapsed. So, you know, my work there, my research that I undertook there was to kind of highlight, you know, if we had just gone back to the map and realised that no matter what was coming after the Soviet Union, the primacy of the Kuala Peninsula and the Western Arctic for the Russian government, for the Kremlin, was always going to be a top priority. Um, other geostrategic interests, and these aren't just for Russia, these are what are enticing new parties to the region, rising powers um, to the region, is the rerouting of international trade. You know, there's often jokes made about the Northern Sea Route and the Transpolar Route or the Northwest Passage as potentially rewriting uh, the rules of global transport. And, you know, naysayers will say, oh, just because the ice is melting doesn't mean it's going to be, you know, easy to access. You know, you then have fast ice, you then have more strategic challenges. Um, but I like to think of it um, very much from an Asian state-centric point of view, which Australia does have, and that's sure, these new polar routes might not reroute international transport and sea lines of communication in the next decade. They might not in the next 20 years, but the states that are in my neighbourhood, they're looking 30, 40 years ahead, right? Um, so absolutely there is a gain in terms of the shorter distance to get your goods and services out of Asia into Europe or back the other way. Um, beyond that, you've got obviously, it's big for data, the Arctic. So again, a shorter geographical route uh, means the cable's um, latency is shorter. So you've got better financial results for financial markets, right? And that's, that's key to having edge mm. in that sector. Um, increasingly, there's discussion about the Arctic um, having, I think it, it, it is kind of a trigger point for some of us Arctic scholars, but it's a, a US um, geological survey which was done and it said, oh, we've got 30% of the world's remaining untapped um, gas and 13% of the untapped oil is left in the Arctic, right? But then when you realise the methodology that they used um, was quite limited at the time, so, yes, there is vast amounts of hydrocarbons, oil and gas in the region, but the majority of them fall well within um, the territorial limits of states. Should they want to ever tap them, I'm not sure commercially it would be viable yet, 
Um, but critical technology is a big one that we do miss out um, in this discussion of resources. So that's, you know, the critical minerals that we have throughout Greenland. And I know Australia has key um, firms that are invested and working up there for our Asian market. Um, so that's where they're at. Energy, I've already touched that. Um, fisheries is another big one. So the majority of the issues that we have currently in the Southern Ocean are starting to rear their head, um, especially in the North Pacific into the Bering Strait. And I would expect um, the next casualty of Arctic suspended dialogue and just Arctic insecurity to be the central Arctic fisheries ban, which is bad news for everyone, very good news for China. So obviously one of the themes that's come, you know, come up throughout this conversation um, is the central theme of your book, as I mentioned, uh, the idea that, hey, there's a case to be made for continued engagement with Russia uh, regarding issues surrounding the Arctic. As I mentioned, that is um, perhaps a provocative one or a controversial one. And the reason for that is because, you know, in the context of what's been going on for the past 13 plus months in Ukraine, in the wake of that sort of renewed aggression in February 2022, uh, we saw a pretty comprehensive sanctions regime put in place, you know, escalations of existing sanctions and new sanctions put in place uh, as punishment for the invasion, but also to deter further aggression. Now, you know, how how effective those sanctions have been is, I guess, a, maybe a separate issue or an issue for a separate discussion. But fundamental to such a comprehensive sanctions regime is just that, how comprehensive they are. Carving out exceptions, the risk is that it might undermine some of the sanctions effectiveness. It might call into question the solidarity and commitment of, of sanctioning parties. This is why, you know, a year ago there was kind of a lot of heartburn about issues. Well, how much Russian oil and gas that Europe is quite dependent on, can we still accept uh, while making sure that these sanctions still bite? That's, I think, why this is maybe a controversial contention to make surrounding the Arctic, right, is how do you do that? How do you pursue engagement and cooperation in the Arctic without it diminishing the significance of, of sanctions and political isolation that's imposed elsewhere? Yeah, really, really good points. And I am fully aware of how the argument, the hypothesis can land and did land for many of my Western, you know, not, on, not only um, colleagues, but friends who, you know, raised, raised um, concerns in some ways about the fact that I put this book out there and put my name to it. Um, but once I was able to really unpack the net cost to the Arctic, to the Western Arctic states of what is coming down the line in putting Russia in a corner, in a box and making them feel like they have no alternative but to bring in external parties to the region. Um, you know, I think people then got a bit of an appreciation for my argument. And on the deterrence point of sanctions, the sanctions one's a really interesting one because I, I fundamentally believe that deterrence is not so much in what, you know, we the West can lay down on Moscow or threaten or, or try to, you know, um, to do to change Moscow's behaviour because at the end of the day, deterrence relies on the calculations of that actor. And I just feel that we could have and we have perhaps to more success deterred Russia in other parts of, of the world. But when it comes to the Arctic, I don't think people did 
um, enough of a cost-benefit analysis to understand that if we were trying to deter behaviour of Russia in Ukraine, the Arctic wasn't the place to be trying to do that because the calculations for Moscow were already stacked in its favour. It had states like China and India to turn to straight away to finance projects when Western firms left, um, to sign on for decadal energy security um, projects, uh, to filter in money, so capital and technology and investment throughout a number of the strategic projects for Russia in its Arctic zone. So here we're talking about Chinese offers and a few have actually been taken up um, to build port infrastructure along the Northern Sea Route. Um, I understand that there is the political and the emotional side um, to the decision to suspend engagement and cooperation with Russia. But uh, yeah, I guess the heart of my thesis was we should have done, or at least that, that war gaming should have been done to more of an extent to really understand Russia's position when it came to the Arctic and who was waiting in the wings. Um, and I can tell you right now from um, a southern experience of one particular state that I've mentioned, um, it's, it's quite easy to welcome um, that particular state into your polar region. Uh, it's very difficult to get them out. Yeah. So I do. That's the next question, the, the next sort of topic that I want to turn to. I don't know if you've seen uh, the television series Borgen. Uh, it's a Danish political drama. There was a recent season that had, you know, as one of its central plot lines, a proposed Chinese natural resources investment in in Greenland. Um, it was really fascinating. Sort of shows the main character, the Danish foreign minister, trying to navigate this geopolitical minefield. On one hand, you know, China's offering a lot of cash and Greenland as an autonomous Danish territory wants to take advantage of it. Uh, on the other hand, the U.S. government makes clear in the show that it does not want that Chinese foothold in, in such a strategic location effectively. Um, it's an excellent portrayal of, of China, its Arctic interests, and, and, and the competition associated with, uh, with it. There are eight Arctic states, countries with territory in the Arctic. China is not one of them, but China describes itself as a near-Arctic state. We were just talking about sanctions, and, and, and those sanctions have in a lot of ways pushed Russia, as you said, closer to China and increased its dependence on China. What about the prospect of, of China leveraging that dependence to sort of increase its stake essentially in the Arctic? Does that need to be taken into consideration, you know, the issue of, of, of whether China is bound by maybe the same interests in cooperation that you argue that in some cases Russia at least has been uh, over the long term? Yes, absolutely. So I think it's the lowest hanging fruit when it comes to any discussion of Sino-Russian relations is, you know, the people are quick to point out the fact that Russia is the junior partner. Um, and I wrote a piece on this recently in which I kind of pulled apart some of the Russian domestic um, literature on this. And Russia doesn't, it's not something that Russia's preoccupied with, right? And I think we keep forgetting the the centuries of history between these two states, right? Um, they've ebbed and flowed between allies, uh, enemies, and now I guess we'd say partnership of convenience. I wouldn't even say alliance either. Um, uh, when it comes to Chinese enhanced investments in the Arctic, it's a, it's a serious problem. Um, but I think then again, we need to have a bit of a reality check and we need to socialise the fact that Russia has quite stringent domestic legislation. So no foreign firm can have strategic investment of over 
you know, 40, 48%, 49% in a number of ventures. Um, so that is a protection mechanism. I don't think um, Russia would be walking into any deal with China without having those concerns in the back of their mind. But at the end of the day, Russia has something that China needs and that's a trade route, potentially, opening up. Um, vast resources that it can possibly get for a lot cheaper, so long as they're willing to sign up for a lot longer. Um, but we do need to consider the intricacies of the Russia-China relationship in that um, the, the positions of negotiation, uh, there's some famous studies on sort of the Confucius elements of Chinese negotiation with Russia. So Power of Siberia 1, which is the line that goes through the heartland from Russia to China, that took 30 years to arrive at an agreement for. And there was a lot of fanfare in the Xi-Putin meeting um, a few weeks back that, you know, Putin must have failed because he could not ink a deal on Power of Siberia 2 and could not make any more um, Arctic deals with Beijing. But, you know, that's when we as experts, I think, really owe it to the community to inject some reality into the discussion and say, sure, but, <laughs> you know, history tells us and their strategic cultures tell us um, this is a, a very prolonged um, approach to negotiation between these two. Um, and I would also say that uh, Russia has made it quite clear numerous public statements um, from Russian energy ministers to, to the president himself that there are other parties they are courting quite actively. Um, India is one of them. And I, if you know, you're well aware of the China-India tensions as well. So I think Russia has diversified where it needs to. Um, but post-Putin, and there will be a post-Putin, you know, we don't know what we're going to get. No one can say anything of their state. I know that the US has some interesting things happening as well um, in the next few years for your own elections. So I guess my thesis at its heart was looking at the long-term implications of this snapshot decision to suspend cooperation. And as I said, with some of these states that are the emerging centres of global power for the next 100 years, younger demographics, huge middle-income communities wanting laptops, wanting goods. Um, I think it was a premature decision that will have ramifications well into the future. What would you say to a skeptic, somebody who might think, mm. okay, this sounds like a compelling argument for cooperation or engagement, you know, but also worries about the risks of getting it wrong, of leaning too heavily into cooperation, and then essentially having the rug pulled out from under us by an yeah. unforeseen aggressive Russian action and being unprepared for it. Yeah, yeah, and that's completely valid. And, and as I've said in the start of the book, when I was talking about the kind of the theoretical framework for my argument, was you know, cooperation is not allying, and it's not having dinner together and letting bygones be bygones. You, in order to cooperate, you have to have had the threat or the, um, the existence and potential of conflict. And conflict in the Arctic, quite frankly, is not good for anyone. It is not good for Russia. It is not good for Denmark. It is not good for Norway, for the US, because, as I said, the Arctic is a maritime issue. Um, we, we want to avoid, obviously, state-to-state -state conflict if we can. 
Um, but I think for the skeptic, I, I would point to precedent. Um, even what a month ago now, Russia was handed down a recommendation by the UN um, Commission on the Limits of the Continental Shelf, which is a body that sits inside UNCLOS, um, which basically said the last two decades of your research to claim the seabed of the North Pole is valid, right? So yeah. the fact that, the, yeah, so the precedent here is Russia has continued to engage with international legal instruments throughout the region. Um, again, if we insert the fact that geography has already put everything quite favourably in Moscow Square to do so, why wouldn't it? Um, I think, yeah, so precedent that they have wanted to keep the region um, cooperative and um, geared towards the ability to execute vast um, research, research um, extraction projects and to get it to the customer base is the key thing, right? Because that for supply security, you need to be um, a trustworthy supplier. Um, what's interesting to me as well, which is something I would probably level at, the, at those sceptics, you know, is the new um, strategy that has been tabled for the Arctic Council presidency for Norway, and they're about to take it over for two years. And it was quite interesting to read through the foundation of that strategy, and that was about um, protecting the Arctic Council for the future, so keeping it going. Um, no one in this sort of senior Norwegian uh, space has come out to say Russia is not welcome. So that was interesting for me. I do think there will be some efforts at least to open the door a crack. Um, but for the sceptics, unfortunately, um, I would have to say now that with time, I'm, I've got much more clarity on what I think is going to happen. And unfortunately, I don't see any willingness from Moscow to re-engage because on the basis of international law, legitimacy of, geograph of geographical territory, they feel they're in the right. So the PR campaign to the Russian people sells itself, you know, the way it was done. You know, the West has pushed us into a corner. This is how, this is why we have this enemy. So we've helped that um, agenda along as well. But there is no real game anymore for Moscow to re-engage because we have alternative partners who can come and finance our new markets um, for what the West has walked out of. And these parties, um, India, for example, last two years ago tabled um, an Arctic strategy. Very interesting, you know, as an observer to the Arctic Council, those part of your sort of handbook for being an observer is that you support the existing governance structures, right? And you don't do anything or, you know, table policies that are untoward to reduce or to erode the primacy of the Arctic Rim states. And for me, tabling a strategy that says more or less India has a strategic interest in what goes on in the Arctic um, because it's for humankind, you know, that internationalises the issue and China has done the same thing, right? Internationalising the Arctic to me is against the observer handbook itself. So we have parties that um, I think will use this opportunity to work closer in the Russian Arctic zone to um, 
honestly to reduce the appetite for Moscow to re-engage with old partners. Um, trust is something that I think was lost years ago between Russia and the West. Perhaps it was never something fully regained. Um, but confidence measures and confidence, confidence building measures, um, I don't think have any have any air left in them um, because the willingness is just not going to be there. And for me, that's part of the net problem that has occurred um, in the Arctic for for Arctic Rim states. Um, and I mean, it's not the first order effects of having Chinese investment in the Arctic going gangbusters in the Russian Arctic zone, it's the second order of effects because China has the world's largest coast guard. They have civil military fusion laws, right? Um, with the kind of money they are potentially going to be pumping into this region, it is totally legitimate and expected to see China send a few warships to send assets to protect its investment, right? And we know what Chinese sort of maritime militia looks like um, in various other parts of the world. So there's that, there's that issue. Um, but another point I guess I, I'd like to close on for the naysayers is even if um, China was to rapidly enhance its, its posture in the Arctic or bring along India or inset whoever else, you know, it's not so much that you have the potential for an anti-Western block developing on the US's doorstep in the Arctic. It's the other issues that can um, fall out of this development, which is what if China and Russia fall out again? You know, what if you have things that happen in, geo in geopolitics? Um, these are two states that I think are very, very sort of toxic to have in the same area. We, we see that they are competing heavily in Africa, um, in Antarctica, they do not work together. Russia works with South Africa for all of its resupply. China works with uh, Latin America to go in and out of, in terms of gateway cities to Antarctica. They do not work together. Um, so the, the kind of simplistic idea that all will be well, um, it, at least from, I guess, a Chinese mindset or a Russian mindset, if they work together in the Arctic, I think is, that's also precarious. Yeah. So if we had just to sort of wrap up um, briefly, I think if you sort of forecast, this is, this really comes back to what we started, right? The, the structures in place and the, you know, sort of unanimity on this is the right sort of approach to or for Arctic governance. If you project forward, say 10 years, do you think, you know, will you see maybe a renewed and re-energized Arctic council? Will you see that sort of it's, maybe authority or, or legitimacy sort of chipped away at by this sort of competitor system that that maybe Russia uh, sort of helps create by bringing other states into the fold? What do you sort of see Arctic governance uh, and engagement looking like 10 years from now? I mean, it wouldn't want to be a space I'd have to work in in terms of being politically posted on a desk um, because there's, there's no clear win here. Um, it's more or less you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? You re-engage with Russia. There's a high likelihood right now they say, no, thanks, we don't need you. Um, that's embarrassing, but also that's problematic. But then it's to the practical issues, right? How do you how do you have an uptick? And it's a, it's a, it's a really 
it's a huge uptick in polar tourism. So sending you know, cruise ships stacked full of people up to this region in which a state that has over 50% of the search and rescue responsibility is not a state you're talking to, not, not a country you can rely on. So this is, you know, it's, I guess my 10-year um, projection for the region is the Arctic will be well and truly internationalised and not in terms of it being a commons in terms of the high seas there in the Arctic Ocean or being a rapid um, east-west transportation route, um, but in terms of an internationalised um, sphere of problems, right? Because how we deal with the rise of China, with traditional adversary states like Russia um, in the Arctic is going to say a lot for what we do in spaces like space. Right? There's a lot to learn um, yeah. with who we want to work with and who we know we can't work with. But for me, again, the point of the book was I feel it was premature um, and a misstep to cut ties in a region where collaboration and engagement was serving its purpose because I don't think we will have that opportunity back as the West. Well, and that... Um not altogether Grim. overly optimistic note. I think we will, I think we will wrap up. Liz, thank you so much for, for making the time to talk about me. It's a really interesting book. It's thought provoking, uh, clearly well-researched. And so I, I want to thank you again for making some time to talk to me today. Thanks, John. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing before you go. If you aren't yet following MWI on social media, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, research, and more that we're publishing every day. Thanks again. Mm-hmm.